Blog Talk Radio. Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I'm happy to welcome the callers and chatters to the show. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. Well, after Pearl Harbor was attacked in 1941, Thousands of Japanese and Japanese-Americans were incarcerated in internment camps. German and Italians were also interred, but in smaller numbers. Well, tonight, the various sites of confinements and the records created will be examined, covering the period of time immediately preceding World War II, through resettlement and redress. My guest tonight is Linda Harms Akasaki, and Linda is a fourth-generation San Franciscan with a background in education. She is a member of the Association of Professional Genealogists and the Genealogical Speakers Guild. Linda currently serves as past president of the California Genealogical Society. Her column, Finding Your Nikkei Roots, is published by Monthly and the Nietzsche Bay Weekly. She is a contract researcher at Ancestry Progenealogist, and in 2015, she and her husband founded the genealogy research company, Linda's Orchard. An active member of the genealogical community, she is passionate. I think tonight you're going to hear that passion about teaching people of all ages to research, document, and share their personal family histories. So let me give a warm welcome to Linda Harms Akasaki to research at the National Archives and Beyond. Welcome, Linda. Thank you, Bernice. I'm delighted to be here tonight. Well, I am delighted to have you, and I have to just tell everyone, I I feel like I had the best opportunity in the world to learn about the topic that you're discussing firsthand when I was asked 
to go to the National Archives and pull some records for you. So why don't you help us understand, first of all, how did you get involved in Japanese-American research? That is a wonderful question. My ancestry is Western European. I have no Japanese ancestry. But my husband was born in Tokyo, and my kids are biracial, and I wanted them to know about their own history. But I couldn't understand why my husband was born stateless in Japan, and it had to do with his family's internment camp experience. And by researching their records, I better understood his family but then people asked me to help them find their stories, and that's where I got hooked. Each story is really compelling, and you know that because of the records that you pulled for me. Yes, and impelling indeed. So let's talk about what led up to the mass incarceration of nearly 120,000 Japanese and Japanese Americans on the West Coast. Pretty staggering number, isn't it? Um, yes, it is. It, it, it's pretty amazing. You know, before World War II, there was a lot going on in the world. Um, Japan had invaded China. Uh, they had colonized a number of areas, including Korea, Taiwan, Hokkaido, Okinawa, and they were very aggressive in Asia. And at the same time, the U.S. was strengthening ties with Canada, and Latin America. And there was certainly concern that we would go to war with Japan well before we were attacked um, in Pearl Harbor. There was concern that we would be attacked in the Pacific, um, in Hawaii, where we had a strong naval presence. There was concern that we might be, um, there might be an attack of the Panama Canal. So the U.S. was building up its resources. They were developing ties with Canada and Latin America. And coupled with that, we have this anti-Asian sentiment that had been building since the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. Um, Asians couldn't become citizens. They couldn't buy land in some states. Uh, there were Asian exclusion leagues. And then after that, the government began keeping track of where the Japanese and Japanese-Americans as well as Italians and Germans, where they lived through the 1930 and 1940 census and the Alien Registration Act. And on top of that, the FBI and the Office of Naval Intelligence were creating lists of potential individuals that might be perceived as threats. So they had the names of people who could potentially be incarcerated. There was a report that came out in 1941. It was called the Munson Report, and it was commissioned by the State Department, and it concluded that the Japanese in the U.S. were really of little threat to our security. But then Pearl Harbor happened, and they had the lists of people to be incarcerated, and it just kind of all went south from there. So tell us a little bit more about this Munson Report. So this Munson report was one of several reports that that came out. Um, it was about a 29-page report. It's available online for everyone to see. Um, and it essentially said that there was little threat of Japanese um, to our security. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote you a line from the Munson report, which is sort of startling to me, but uh, 
Mr. Munson reported, we do not want to throw a lot of American citizens, meaning Japanese American citizens, into a concentration camp, of course, and especially as the almost unanimous verdict is that in the case of war, they will be quiet, very quiet. And I use that term because I want, first I want to make sure that we, com- we understand that the camps in the U.S. were not the same as the Nazi death camps. They should never be compared. But prior to World War II, the U.S. government was using the word concentration camp um, in reference to the possible internment of Japanese, Germans, and Italians. Uh, Today, we typically use the word internment or incarceration um, rather than the the words concentration camp. In addition to this uh, really interesting report called the Munson Report, the U.S. government was putting together what was called the Military Intelligence Service Language School. And this was also in November of 1941, a month before Pearl Harbor, where they were training Japanese Americans to be linguists in the event that we would go to war with the Japanese. So so you can see the Japanese the American government knew that we were going to go to war. They just didn't know that Pearl Harbor was going to be the specific um issue. Right. Very interesting. And so they had these language schools that were started um just so that the Japanese Americans would then join the join well, the were, military. Uh, so they were they were um pulling Japanese Americans into the military, into the Army. Mm -hmm. Um, So Mm -hmm. this was Army service. Uh, Once the exclusion zone was set up, and we'll go into that in a minute, they moved the language school from the Presidio in San Francisco to Minnesota, which was considered the interior, because between February, March, April or so, they were moving all of the Japanese outside of the West Coast area. Um, but there were a lot, a lot of fellows that served in the MIS um, during World War II and also following World War II when the U.S. occupied Japan. Mm-hmm. So talk a little bit more about the exclusion zone. Um, just tell us, why didn't families leave and move to the interior of the United States? Well, that's a that's a pretty good question. So the, the government established this, demarcation. It was about um, the western half of Washington State, western half of Oregon, all of California, and the southwestern portion of Arizona. And they gave the Japanese Americans a little bit of time and said, okay, we want you to, quote unquote, voluntarily move to the interior. But think about this. Mm-hmm. If, you're, if you were a Japanese citizen and your bank accounts were frozen, perhaps the father had been arrested by the FBI. You had a couple of weeks to sell your business, your car, give away your pets, that sort of thing. People didn't want to do that voluntarily. There were a few thousand Japanese and Japanese Americans who did move to the interior, but it was also the height of the anti-Asian era, and other states didn't want Japanese coming in. Um, So where were they going to work? Where were they going to live? It just wasn't realistic. And so at that point, the government decided, well, we're going to have a forced evacuation instead of a voluntary evacuation because they decided that there were to be no more Japanese 
of any citizenship. They call them um, aliens and non-aliens. Uh, non-aliens would be a euphemism for an American citizen. And the one-drop rule applied. You know, if you were one-sixteenth Japanese, you still had to move. Um, of course, in the West Coast, there were anti-miscegenation laws, so there weren't a whole lot of mixed-race families at that time. Um, mm-hmm. so, so starting um, in March, the civilian orders went into place, and these families uh, were given orders to relocate. Most of them were given in, in the vicinity of six days to pack up and then assemble um, in a community area where they would be taken to a place um, where they were to live in what they called apartments. Now, keep in mind, they could only bring what they could carry. They were required to bring bed linens, dishes, clothing. They didn't know where they were going, so what would be the appropriate clothing to bring. Couldn't bring pets. They assembled in these areas, which for the most part were racetracks and fairgrounds. And the vast majority lived in animal quarters. Uh, not everyone was housed in the animal quarter, but I really have a hard time calling those apartments. And my father-in-law spoke to me about what it was like to go and live in a horse stable. It had been whitewashed. There was a wooden subfloor, but it still reeked of manure. Uh, and they lived there for a few months before they were then transferred to what was considered a more permanent um, war Relocation Authority camp. Well, I have a question uh, coming out of the chat room. Mm-hmm. Now, when when you spoke of uh, internment, did that affect other Asians, or was a person of Japanese ancestry easily identified beyond their name? Well, certainly... Um, there was fear among other Asians, so um, think about the Korean community that was living in the West Coast. Most people couldn't, most uh, European uh, ancestor individuals living in the West Coast couldn't tell if they were Japanese or not, maybe couldn't understand the difference between the last names. But the U.S. government had already determined who these people were via the 1930 census, the 1940 census, the Alien Registration Act. And then as the families were to gather to these assembly centers, the head of the household then had to register the families. So it was only Mm -hmm. for the Japanese. Now, there were other issues that we'll get into later of Germans and Italians. There were also also some Aleutians. There were some mixed-race families where the um, Mexican citizen or the Caucasian spouse maybe joined the family in the camp as well. And then there's another question. What about Chinese Americans? Were they affected in any way? Well, the Chinese had been discriminated for many years, beginning even before the Chinese Exclusion Act. And for Mm -hmm. the Chinese, they had um, less discrimination at that point. I don't want to say they had no discrimination. Um, but they weren't Japanese. We weren't at war with China. Um, Chinese were not alien enemies, so they had less discrimination. And in fact, the Chinese were eligible to become U.S. citizens in 1943, whereas the Japanese and other Asians couldn't become U.S. citizens until 1952. 
Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned earlier that the FBI had already started creating a list mm-hmm. of those to be arrested. What was mm-hmm. the criteria that they used? And I'm thinking beyond being Jap- Japanese, what, what are the criteria that well, they used? So they were, uh, they were looking at um, how did the Japanese interact with the Japanese government, so oh, okay. did they, was it, were they a perceived threat? Now, this is um, kind of difficult to define, right? So sometimes you have mm-hmm. leaders of the community, language school instructors, uh, Buddhist priests, that sort of thing, who may, may appear to the uninformed to be more of a threat. But also, if you have an individual who could not become a U.S. citizen, who could not own land, who had to register their children's births with the Japanese government, who had to get a Japanese passport, they're still going to interact with the Japanese government to a degree. I know my 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 husband's grandfather was arrested, and we couldn't figure it out for the life of us, but he did give a small donation to something with the Japanese government. It was a token amount and we figured maybe that's why he was on the list but he was not on it was called the abc list the the a's were the first to be arrested and those were generally the men who were arrested within the first 48 hours my husband's grandfather was not arrested until i think it was middle of february um so he was probably less of a threat he wasn't a community leader mhm mhm now let's talk for a minute about the assembly centers what were they? Racetracks and fairgrounds. These were places that were temporary mm. residences for the Japanese. They were, they were already built. You know, we already had our racetracks and fairgrounds. And the families would go there until the internment camps or the sites of confinement were built. And those camps, those more permanent camps, were run by the War Relocation Authority. They resembled army barracks. Um, and they were built in remote areas, uh, accessible by rail. Um, and so the families had to stay in these assembly centers. And there were 15 assembly centers and then two other centers that actually became internment camps. Um, mm-hmm. And they stayed in those up until the point that the internment camps were ready for them to be uh, lived in. And I know that for my father-in-law, they traveled from the Tulare Fairgrounds in um, Central California by rail to Gila River, Arizona. They didn't know where they were going. They were told that they had to keep the shades down on the the windows of the train. Um, and then they arrived in, in the desert. What's ironic about Gila is that it was the site of a Native American reservation. And those Native Americans were displaced during the time that there wow. was an internment camp, it is ne- has now been returned to the Native Americans, but it's all around kind of a ironic um, and sad story. Yes, it it, is. it sounds like a very sad story. Um, you know, another question is: Were they protected from the elements on those tracks and grounds, like the rain and the wind? Or- well, when they were traveling, certainly they were inside. Um, there, the the centers, the the assembly centers, and the internment camps were very much like small cities. So there was medical care, there were schools, there were rec- recreational facilities. But I don't, <clears throat> excuse me, mean to 
paint a pretty picture. It was more like an army life. So there was um, mess halls for dining. Uh, so, so you really disrupt the nuclear family when you're all eating communally or bathing communally or toileting communally. So it really disrupted the sense of privacy in the community, the sense of family. And then these families didn't know where they were going. So if they were up in Wyoming or uh, Arkansas, you know, they, they had to deal with the elements. If they came from Southern California and they got moved up to Colorado or, or Wyoming, they didn't have the appropriate clothing to, to deal with the elements. So most of the adults worked, and they, they made a token <clears throat> excuse me, amount of money, <clears throat> and they could purchase things. Um, but they were um, suffering from medical ailments as well. Um, a lot of kids with asthma um, and other things because of all the dust and that sort of thing. And I'm going to take a sip of water just a second. Oh, sure. Go ahead. I'm back. Okay. So they did not know where they were going, which means they did not have the the proper clothing. Mm -hmm. And then you said they did work. So how did they get the proper clothing? And the medical care that they needed. Excuse me. Mm -hmm. There were um, medical facilities in each camp. There were doctors and nurses. My father-in-law had his appendix removed, for example. Oh, wow. They would also purchase um, things through um, the Sears catalog and that sort of thing. Okay. What we're going to do is take a quick break so that you can get your... Get my voice back. Together. (laughs) Yeah. And we'll come right back, okay? Mm -hmm. Just take a quick break. Welcome back to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander-Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy and history questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, TuneIn.com, and Stitcher.com. 
You have been listening to Linda Harms Akasaki discuss the internment records. And she's going to give us a little bit more. But, Linda, we have a question. Do any of the internment camps still exist today? Great question. Um, No camp is complete, but there has been um, a resurgence in the younger Japanese-American community to go on pilgrimages to the sites. You can visit almost all of them. The easiest to access is the Manzanar Camp, which is in eastern California, and there are barracks which have been recreated. Um, But there are a number of other camps which you can also um, go and visit. Um, They just have less uh, on display for, for you to see. Okay. And so I'm hoping that you'll be able to tell us a little bit more about that. Also, uh, another question, uh, the chatter would like to know, where did they go after they were given their freedom back? Did they return to their home of origin? That, in the uh, wisdom of Judy Russell, depends. Um, The people that were released from the camps who were originally residents of the United States received the same stipend that prisoners who were released from federal prison received. I believe it was about $25. And that period of resettlement was very difficult for them because a lot of the Americans didn't want the Japanese to come back into their communities. Um, Some of them found jobs in places like Illinois, Salt Lake City, New York, the people that had the greatest difficulty were the individuals who had been from Latin America. And um, there were a number of Japanese, Germans, and Italians who were sent by, I think it was 15 different Latin American countries, sent them to the U.S. The U.S. took their passports, called them illegal aliens, and the intent was to use them in a prisoner of war exchange program Not all of them were used as prisoner of war exchanges. And that left a lot of Japanese, specifically Japanese from Peru, who um, didn't want to go to Japan. They didn't know Japan. They were from Peru. And most of them ended up remaining in the United States and finding jobs. So wait a minute. (laughs) Quick question. (laughs) Latin Americans, wait a minute. These countries held the Japanese? So, I mean, can you just tell us a little bit more about okay. what you just said? Let's back up. So yes. the U.S. was an ally with Canada and Latin America, many countries okay. in Latin America. And previous to World War II, there were lots of immigrants who had gone to Latin America just as they had gone to the United States. But Japanese, Germans, and Italians were considered enemy aliens. And so the the U.S. had an agreement with Latin American countries that they would take some of those individuals and put them into camps. Those camps were run by the Department of Justice. Um, The biggest one was in uh, Crystal City, Texas, uh, where my husband's family was incarcerated. And um, the Japanese Peruvians were the last to be released, and Crystal City was the very last camp to close it did not close until February of 1940, 
eight. Wow. Wow. So I just want to back up a little bit. Uh-huh. So what happened to the men who were arrested and sent to the Department of Justice camps? So that would be like this camp, Crystal City. Um, okay. Those individuals were arrested in a variety of places, including Hawaii. Uh, many people don't realize that there was an internment camp in Hawaii called Honouliuli that had um, arrested men f- uh, from Japan, Germany, and Italy. Um, there were also other prisoner of wars who were held at that same camp. And these individuals were, were sent to these Department of Justice camps either in Hawaii or Texas. There, there were a number of camps around the United States. And many of the men went to a variety of camps. So, for example, my husband's grandfather was arrested in um, El Centro near San Diego, sent to Tuna Canyon near Los Angeles, sent to Lordsburg, New Mexico, then to Santa Fe, New Mexico, then to Crystal City, Texas. And at that point, he was reunited with his family. So Crystal City, Texas was kind of a family camp. It was an opportunity for family unification. I don't mean to paint a pretty picture, but at least the family was together. Um, But there Mm -hmm. were a variety of camps. Some of them were just for men. Um, some of them housed m- multiple ethnicities. Some of them um, were in Texas. Some of them were in New Mexico and elsewhere. And those records are different at the National Archives. And when we get into that in a little bit, I'll tell you about how to get those records. Well, why don't we just start with how can individuals research and find the records for people who were incarcerated? I think that. It's a good segue into okay. you telling us more about those records. So for people who are just starting this research, whether this is part of your family history, whether you're just interested, or whether you're a genealogist, your your go-to place, your first stop, is going to be either Ancestry.com or Family Search, where you're going to look for the U.S. Final Accountability rosters. And those are divided by camp the War Relocation Authority camps. Um, They're arranged alphabetically by surname, and those tell you who is in a family group, what the family number is, if the person is an alien or a citizen, what their alien registration number was, what uh, assembly center they were at, what date they entered the internment camp, and where they were sent to after camp. So you might see on there sent to Crystal City, Texas, and then you know it's a Department of Justice camp, sent to Tule Lake, which is a segregation center, sent to Chicago, Illinois, then I would probably want to do some more research and see, hmm, why did they go to Chicago? Um, But it's a starting point. And then from there, for every person that was in the War Relocation Authority camps, they will have a case file. Let me take my sip of water again. Sure. <clears throat> and those case files are held at the National Archives in Washington, D.C. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. Sorry about that. <clears throat> and Take your time. <laughs> so those are in Record Group 210, the records of the War Relocation Authority. There are more than just the case files, but that's the tip of the iceberg, and those are the ones that you want to start with. 
And say that record group again. Record group 210. And those are available at the National Archives in Washington, D.C. Now, there are privacy restrictions on those. And the reason these records are fairly recent. Some of these people are still alive. So you have to either prove death with a death certificate or a copy of a find a grave or something like that, or else the person has to request themselves or give you power of attorney to request the record. Oh, okay. So you can't just go to the National Archives and say, I want this case file. Only if they're deceased. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, but you know, nineteen—they didn't get out until nineteen forty-five or later. Or if they were born right. in the camp, <clears throat> they're mm-hmm. probably still living. Right. You could still have some ninety-year-olds, and obviously, if there were young children, you know, they're there. Exactly. I mean, they would still be alive, right? Exactly. My husband's aunt and uncle are still living, um, and their records are there. So everyone who was in a WRA camp or relocation authority camp will have a file. Sometimes the children's files are combined with the parents, especially if they were under 14, but not always. And sometimes Mm -hmm. people transferred between camps, maybe that got married or were joining another family member. So you want to check for all the camps that they were at. Um, usually the, the files are consolidated, but not always. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, so tell us more about the other records. So we have Record Group 210 at the National Archives, and that's Archives 1 or that's Archives Archives two. 1 in D.C. Now, okay. we talked about the assembly centers at the beginning. The assembly right. center records <clears throat> are only available on microfilm, and they are at uh, Archives 2 in College Park and also in San Bruno, uh, which is, they call it the San Francisco branch of the National Archives. That is record group 499. These are really, really important because it gives you a snapshot of what was happening right at the beginning. Maybe a family member died. Maybe there was a baby that was born that you didn't know about. So looking at those assembly center microfilm holdings is really important to get this, um, <clears throat> to tell the whole story. Um, and when you and say then, tell the whole story, what, what, what will you see in, in the record? So in the assembly center records, that really depends on the, the assembly center. One time I found an assembly center record that <clears throat> just basically said they were there. Another time I found all kinds of letters. Now this is on microfilm because the assembly center records, the paper records no longer exist. But there were letters from the family. They had a death in the family at the assembly center. Their bank accounts had been frozen. They couldn't pay for the funeral, so they were writing to their friends outside of the camp to help them pay for a funeral. Now, it's a tragic story, but, boy, does that add a lot to your family history. Um, It does. So so you want to look at the assembly center records. The uh, evacuee case files, those are the record group 210 that we were talking about, can give you all kinds of information. You might learn what elementary school they went to. If they were the immigrant, you might learn where they lived in Japan, or you might identify another generation, who their parents were or grandparents, or who was still living 
in Japan. And then sometimes you can get some really fun information. Now, my father-in-law's case file said that he liked to read Archie comics and play baseball. Now, that's not adding another generation to my family tree, but I'll tell you, it really adds a lot of color to to my family's story. I mean, how cute is that? But he read Archie comics, and I never would have known that if I hadn't read this this case file. And who's gathering this information? For... So that you could read something like this in the case file. Did he write it on a document? No. And he he that likes would, to read this that or someone would, else documented That would be it. part of an interview that the government was recording. Okay. So he okay. was 14. He was in the ninth grade when the war broke out. And a government mm-hmm. official interviewed him and asked things like, what do you like to read? What hobbies do you have? Where did you go to elementary school? <clears throat> that sort of thing. Okay, and so the records, so someone is interviewing him. So if he would move from one place to another place, then his record would follow him and he would be interviewed again and they would continue to gather documentation on this individual? That that would depend. Now, in his case, no, that didn't happen. Um, he was moved to a Department of Justice camp, so the rest of his files are completely different. But for other people who transferred between camps, say they got married or divorced or whatever, then, um, yes, sometimes there will be a new intake form. Now, you mentioned earlier about the letters, but I remember looking at one of the files, and there were letters from the children that they had written to the government saying, we really need our father, he's a very good man. I mean, tell us about some of the letters that the children and other family members wrote for family members that were incarcerated. So I I do remember those files that you got for me, and that was a very compelling story. Um, That was a fellow who had been arrested and sent to a Department of Justice camp. And the family couldn't understand why... They couldn't be reunited with their father. Um, There was nothing that I could tell in his file that would indicate that he did anything wrong um, other than being a Japanese citizen. And so all of the children, if I recall, this family had a number of children in it. From the small children to the older children would write letters to the government saying, please, can we be reunited with my father? Um, and those would be um, in the alien enemy files, and that is record group 60, and those are located in College Park. Okay. So alien M- enemy files, uh, Correct. record group 60. Correct. And for mm-hmm. the Japanese that were alien enemies and held in Department of Justice camps, those individuals have been indexed. So you can go to the National Archives catalog, and in the search box um, in their catalog, you can type in the name, and it will pop up some information for you. That doesn't hold true necessarily for the Germans and the Italians. So what kind of information or how can you find information on the Germans and the Italians? Well, what I typically do is ask somebody in Washington, D.C. to get that for me. I just um, requested this morning um, that a person would go and, and look for those records on the Germans and the Italians that I, that I know of. 
um, if they were American or living legally in the U.S., they should theoretically be in the same files that the Japanese have, the record group 60. If they came from Latin America, what you want to do is look at the State Department records. So you really have a lot of different opportunities to conduct this research. You just have to know where to go and, and where to look. So in the camp. Were there facilities, if anyone got in trouble, like a jail or confinement quarters? Yes, yes. Um, and sometimes those people were at the mercy of the the people, that, uh, the, the army officers or the guards. Uh, Manzanar is a great example. Um, there was an uprising, a riot, if you will, at Manzanar. And I'm researching a fellow who was there, and it appears to me, that um, he wasn't part of the riot, but he kind of got swept up into it, and he was the first Mm -hmm. person held at the jail at Manzanar. And from Manzanar, they took him and put him in the Citizen Isolation Center in Moab, which is in, I believe that's in Utah. And this is all in his Record Group 60 file. It's also all in his Record Group 210 file. And there's a third file I want your listeners to know about, Called uh, that's for uh, citizens um, who were arrested and put into the War Relocation Authority camps, and that's Record Group 389. And I know I'm throwing out a lot of numbers here, but if the listeners go to the National Archives website and just type in Japanese-American internment, the catalog will have all kinds of explanations on which records to order, how to order them, what record groups you want, because we're only barely scratching the surface today. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, you know, when you're talking about the different resources, mm-hmm. are there books or other websites to learn more about these records in addition to the National Archives? Yes, and I'm going to tell you about just a couple of my favorite ones. So okay. um, in addition to the National Archives website, uh your listeners should be familiar with denshow.org, D-E-N-S-H-O. It's a uh, virtual website. The, uh, it's based in Seattle. It's interactive. It's an encyclopedia. There are oral histories. There are photographs. And it's absolutely incredible, primarily pertaining to the Japanese experience during World War II. The second website is pertaining to the German experience, both Germans in the U.S. and Germans from Latin America, and that's the German-American Internee Coalition, and the website is G-A-I-C dot info. Again, it's interactive. It's growing all of the time. There are oral histories there. I'm not familiar with a site that um, focuses just on the Italians, but between the Den Show and the GAIC website, there's quite a bit of information that you can put together. So those are the two best websites. I also encourage people to go to local universities. Um, University of Washington, uh, Washington State University has a huge collection. The Bancroft Library, um, UCLA, uh, San Francisco State, 
there are other universities um, across the country that have collections that are useful that you wouldn't think of, but maybe an individual donated to to their university, to Yale or University of Pennsylvania or that sort of thing. So always check the universities that are near you. And then and if you really, no, go ahead. Go ahead. I've got two books, but if you want to ask me a question, that's good. Well, it's it's just a question about is there a growing population of Japanese Americans now conducting this research? I think so. So, you know, the we call them Issei and Nisei. That the Issei would be the immigrant generation. Nisei is the first generation that's born here. And then the Sansei, the third generation, they didn't really ask a whole lot of questions. But the next generation, what we call the Yonsei or the fourth generation, they're really interested. They are going on pilgrimages. They are researching. Um, in fact, we have a pilgrimage coming up to Angel Island on October 13th, a Japanese-American pilgrimage with 14 genealogists that are helping the pilgrims to kickstart their own genealogy. People are really, really interested in this. Mm-hmm. That is really interesting, the uh, the pilgrimage. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and how often does this take place? This is the fifth year in a row that we're doing a pilgrimage, but it's Last year we went to Wakamatsu, which was the site <clears throat> of the first Japanese-American colony in the U.S., and that's up near uh, Sutter's Mill, which is where gold was discovered in California, and that colony was established in the 1860s. It eventually failed, but but we did go on a pilgrimage there last year. And then I'm hoping that we'll participate next year because it's the 150th anniversary of Wakamatsu, um, and then after that, we hope to go back to Angel Island um, because it's the hospital there is being renovated. Most people think of Angel Island um, pertaining to the Chinese immigrants because of the poetry that's carved in the walls. But there were a lot of Japanese that were um, not detained, but they, they, they immigrated through Angel Island. They were held there for weeks or months at a time. Right. Now, you have an interesting question uh, okay. in the chat. Okay, this question is about mixed children, Japanese uh-huh. and black or white, and uh-huh. what are they learning of their Asian ancestry and about the camps? And also are the uh, mixed race, Japanese and black, also learning about slavery? Well, I hope that everybody teaches their kids to learn both sides of their history. That's certainly what we're trying to do in our family. So I think it's the schools and the parents have an obligation to teach both. And I know in the Japanese community, the the Japanese tend to um, marry or or have children with other races more than other races do. So you're going to find a lot more mixed kids in the in the Japanese American community. What's interesting about the Japanese and Black community is that, or my experience is that. It often involves someone in the military um, because we have um, a large uh, uh, military presence in Japan. So that's where you often see a lot of mixed kids there. And the other place uh, that you see mixed kids is with war brides. Sometimes they're Korean war brides. Other times they're Japanese war brides. Um, It's not my area of expertise, but I do know that the National Archives in San Bruno has a list of war brides that came through San Francisco, and there are some Facebook pages on researching 
your war bride history. And, and again, those oftentimes are Japanese black. Very interesting. So another question is about <laughs> the children. Now, were the children cast aside and put in orphanages like Germany did with the brown babies? Are you talking about the mixed-race kids, or are you talking about yes, just kids in the, the camp? the mixed-race kids. The, I don't, well, the mixed-race kids. Mm-hmm. So so before before 1952, um, there were anti-miscegenation laws, so, so you're not going to see a whole lot of Asian white or Asian black marriages. And that's why it was an issue with the war brides, like if they married a black man who was from the South and they it was maybe illegal to be married to them. So it, uh-huh. it's kind of complicated. You don't see a whole lot of that early on. Um, so I'm not personally familiar with a lot of kids going into the orphanages because of being mixed race. Okay. Now, back to some of these records. In addition to uh, finding, as you mentioned, low habits and what have you, what about pictures? Were there pictures in those files that if someone was looking for great grandpa mm-hmm. and he passed away, would they see his image in a record? So the my personal experience at the National Archives is that I haven't found a whole lot of pictures that are relevant to specific people. That doesn't mean they don't exist because the National Archives in College Park does have a lot of photos there. But there are some other sites where you might find photos. Densho, which I mentioned earlier, is a great site. Patty Hirahara donated a collection to Washington State, and they have a collection. So these online collections are are really good resources for photos. USC has a great collection, and Library of Congress has a great collection as well. Um, Online Archive of California is a great resource. I found a picture of my husband's aunt in in the online uh, archive of California. So so you have to look in different places. Now, I will tell you a little story. We were going on a pilgrimage visiting all of the sites where my husband's family had been, and we went to Crystal City, Texas, and we were looking at an interpretive panel of the educational system, and my cell phone rang, and it was my father-in-law, and he said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm looking at a picture of Crystal City, the senior class of Crystal City, 1945, and he said, oh, I'm in the back row center. I was the student body president, (laughs) and I had no idea. Um, And because of that interpretive panel, I was able to obtain the original, a copy of the original from the National Archives, but it was not held in the photo department of College Park. It was actually in another uh, file in Washington, D.C., in a folder. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's that's wonderful that he called you at that particular point in time. <laughs> it was great. That's that is great. Well, how can people contact you for more information? Well, they are welcome to send me an email, and my email is Linda H, as in house Okazaki O K A Z A K I at Gmail. I do um, a lot of seminars on this topic, um, so I'm always happy to do that. I am going to be doing a two-day seminar the first weekend in February in Seattle, courtesy of the Seattle Genealogical Society at the Seattle Public Library. Um, So that's going to be really exciting. We have 
three sessions set up for uh, family historians and one morning training the trainer. It's it's going to be geared just to genealogists. So I'm always open to doing that sort of a thing. And is there some type of research guide that you have put together to assist others when you're doing yes. these seminars? I have um, I have a quick guide. It's a six-page laminated guide um, to finding your roots in the U.S. and in Japan. Um, it is twelve dollars plus postage, and it will be um, it. It's still current, but I'm in the process of uh, redoing it. So probably in the next six months or so, there will be a second edition coming out, um, and and that one will include a little bit of DNA and that sort of thing. Oh, great, great. And so right now, how do they get a copy of the quick guide? If they send me an email, I will I will I will tell them how to pay for it. They can do it by PayPal um or by check, and I mail it snail mail. Oh, okay, great. So Linda, we're getting close to the end of the show. Do you have any parting words or any additional information you feel people should know? Well, I'd like to tell our listeners about two books. Um, one is put out by the government, and it's called Personal Justice Denied, and it's a report on the wartime relocation and internment of civilians, Personal Justice De- De- Denied. And the other book is called The Train to Crystal City, and it's by Jan Jarbo Russell. It reads like a novel, but it's actually uh, nonfiction about the camp at Crystal City, and it compares the experience between a German family and a Japanese family, and it's, it's wonderful. Um, and other than that, I just encourage everybody to start uncovering these stories. Um, they're so unique and they're so recent. There's, it's really powerful to see somebody look at their own record or look at their mother's or their grandmother's records. It's just just incredibly powerful. So I I really encourage everybody to get their own records or uh, if you're a genealogist, learn how to get them for other people. Right. Well, first of all, I just want to thank you so much. Uh, Your passion (laughs) has definitely come out tonight. Thank you. And you provided just a wealth of information. This this has been a very interesting topic. And so just just thank you, Linda. <laughs> well, thank, thank you, you so for having me, for, Bernice. For it's, it's really been a lot of fun for me to be able to participate. Well, thank you. And please remember, everybody else, I want you to remember, your ancestors left footprints. And you should follow the clues that are presented to them and to you through oral history, family records, and research at the National Archives and beyond. You can continue this discussion on the Research at the National Archives and Beyond Facebook page. And also remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji. And also watch for the Black Progen Live with host Nika Soul Smith. Thank you so much for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. I look forward to all of you joining me next week. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Good night, everyone. Good night, Linda. Good night, Bernice. Thank you so much. Okay.